coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. In those communities that don't have lots of grass fields and don't have community centers uh, with great facilities and may not even have a grocery store in the neighborhood that has fresh produce, there are various uh, initiatives to try to combat these challenges, uh, but they are difficult. And some of them involve just sort of free market economic forces. And we have to be conscious of that. I think, you know, to be conscious of it as a nation uh, is important as well. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness National Director Ben Goodman. Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Gross. With me, as always, our National Director of Mission Readiness, Ben Goodman. Ben, how are you? I'm always great when I'm here on the Mission Readiness Podcast, General Gross. How are you this week? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. You know, a lot of times when people introduce speakers or introduce podcast guests, they'll say, this man or this woman needs no introduction. And a lot of times... It's perhaps not as true as as we would want, but today it's true. Today our podcast guest is General David Petraeus, Director David Petraeus, uh, a man who served with great distinction in public service and, and has done some amazing things since. And I know General Petraeus needs no introduction. Well, if you were alive in the United States in the last 20 years, uh, you know the name of General David Petraeus. He's a household name. And when it comes to the readiness issues that we care about here at Mission Readiness, uh, there's no one better qualified uh, or more knowledgeable to speak on preparing the next generation for success and why it is a national security imperative. Absolutely true. Well, let's get right to that interview. A man who truly, truly needs no introduction, had an amazing 37-year career in the Army, rising to the highest rank of four-star, commanded U.S. Central Command, commanded all U.S. forces in Iraq, commanded all U.S. forces in Afghanistan to include NATO forces, director of the CIA, just an extraordinary career, and, and frankly wrote the counterinsurgency doctrine that we follow today and will continue to follow, I suspect, for years, if not decades, into the future. Sir, thank you so much for being on the Mission Readiness Podcast. Well, the pleasure is mine, Rich, and thanks in turn for all of your years in uniform. Thank uh, you, Especially sir. the years that we enjoyed together at the 101st Airborne Division, and then when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan at various times together as well, especially with you uh, working for the Joint Special Operations Command. And then as the legal counsel, I inherited from the great General Stan McChrystal in Afghanistan. Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, besides your amazing public service, you've also done a lot of amazing things since you've left public service. Would you tell us about some of the things you're doing today? Well, I've been very fortunate since leaving government not quite eight years ago. Uh, I've been a the chairman of the KKR Global Institute. Uh, KKR is one of the world's biggest uh, originally private equity investment firms. It's really now a full uh, investment firm. And again, it's a, a global organization. Uh, I joined the firm and founded the Global Institute uh, about seven plus years ago. 
uh, and I was made a partner about six years ago. Uh, I've also been active with a number of different academic institutions, the City University of New York's Honors College, uh, the University of Southern California, Harvard, uh, Yale, uh, University of Exeter, and University of Birmingham uh, in England. Uh, I'm a private venture capitalist, uh, invested in about seven, 17 different startups, um, on the boards of a couple of companies, uh, Optiv, a cybersecurity firm, a really great one, frankly, and then uh, OneSource, which is a, a corporate performance management software platform that is uh, really state-of-the-art, and then active with a number of nonprofits uh, um, on the boards of over a dozen veterans support organizations and uh, very active with a number of think tanks, uh, such as the Atlantic Council, the Woodrow Wilson Center, Institute for the Study of War, Royal United Services Institute, uh, and some others. So it's a full plate, uh, and I used to travel endlessly, uh, usually 25 or so different countries in the course of a given year in most of the major cities in the U.S. That all came to a screeching halt uh, six months or so ago. Uh, and it's been wonderful to be home in Arlington, Virginia during that whole time. The most I think I've been at home uh, at any time since I graduated from West Point. Well, sir, you may have set the record for the busiest person in retirement. That's absolutely incredible. Let's let's back up to the beginning of your career. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I know you were uh, born just outside of West Point, actually, and went to went to the academy. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what made you decide to go into the Army. Well, I was born and raised seven miles from West Point. Uh, Cornwall and Hudson is the village. We actually went to the Cornwall, the town high school. Uh, and I think that over the years, the exposure to so many individuals who were at that time active at West Point, uh, either as serving uh, commissioned officers or in some of the administrative positions were West Point graduates who had retired um, aspiring cadets. There was actually a prep school a couple of blocks from my house that prepared those that were trying to get into West Point and hadn't got in the first time they tried. And I think the cumulative effect of all of this was to develop a degree of respect for West Point, for those who were there and those who had graduated from the U.S. Military Academy. And, you know, a lot of what we do in life, I think, is to be like Mike. Mike is someone or something that we respect and admire and would like to be like. And I wanted to be like those that I associated with at West Point. And so, you know, my folks drove me seven miles around Storm King Mountain, dropped me off, and uh, I entered New Cadet Barracks in July of 1970. That's great. I like that. The, 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 uh, the mic you want to be like, that's uh, that's a good leadership lesson right there. We've certainly all had those mics in our background. Well, as you know, we've, we've just passed the 19th anniversary of, of nine 11 and you held some, some very critical roles in the time following that just want to take you back and maybe reflect on some of the changes you've seen uh, some of the your reflections on those those early days after the 9/11 attack, and 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 then maybe some comparisons to the some of the sea changes we're seeing right now, frankly, due to COVID and some of the issues going on. Well, the 9/11 attacks obviously ushered in what is now almost two decades of of nonstop war. Uh, certainly, much 
smaller numbers of forces deployed at this point in time. But at various moments, we had 165,000 American men and women in uniform in Iraq alone. In fact, when I was privileged to command the surge there, we had 100,000 Americans in uniform in Afghanistan, as you'll recall, uh, when I was privileged to command there. Central Command, uh, when I took command, was 250,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, just again from the United States. And of course, we always had tens of thousands of coalition partners, 50,000, in fact, in Afghanistan. So these were extraordinary periods of very, very heavy combat. Uh, and we really went from an army that had, of course, originally existed to fight the Cold War, uh, which we never had to fight because we were able to deter that conflict and, and ultimately, in a sense, won that war without having to fire a shot at least not on European soil, where the NATO, U.S. and NATO forces were faced off with the Soviet and Warsaw Pact forces. Uh, there were certainly skirmishes elsewhere in the world with proxy elements. But again, an extraordinary victory for the United States. Not long after that, of course, we had uh, Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, where uh, the United States-led coalition uh, expelled the Iraqi army from Kuwait uh, in, an, in a 100-hour ground war after pummeling them from the air uh, for a number of weeks. Uh, and it seemed as if uh, the U.S. was omnipotent. This was the period of the so-called unipolar moment. Uh, and we certainly had some other activities. There was Mogadishu. Uh, we did uh, Bosnia, Haiti. I was in Haiti, actually, as the chief of operations. We did have some small operations in Central America, and I actually was privileged to observe those at the very least, and then spent a year in Bosnia. We were in the Balkans, but again, none of these really were particularly shooting wars. Uh, and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, as you well know, were very intense. Uh, sometimes they have been called small wars or low-intensity conflict. You can't tell that to somebody who was in the Brotherhood of the Close Fight, as it's called, those who were truly in the close combat. And of course, by the way, the Brotherhood now includes women as well as men uh, and has since the very beginning when we did the fight to Baghdad when I was privileged to be the commander of the 101st Airborne Division, in fact. Uh, the truth is that after 9-11, I think I was deployed for something like seven of 10 years. Uh, I counted one time that I think I was deployed for eight of 10 fourths of July or something. Um, and in that period was was extraordinary privilege to have six consecutive commands. Five of those were in combat. So it was really a, quite a period really for everybody who was in uniform. Uh, and I count myself very much uh, among them. And, and it was a period that produced what I think deservedly is called America's new greatest generation. Uh, this, this is the generation of young American men and women who, in the wake of 9-11, raised their right hand, took an oath of service uh, at a time of war, knowing that they were going to end up deploying to Iraq or Afghanistan or both, and to do it again and again and again. Uh, and it was Tom Brokaw, in fact, who was with us in the early days in Iraq and saw all that our soldiers were doing. Uh, and it wasn't just, of course, chasing bad guys or doing raids or clearing, holding, and building. It was actually 
helping to restore basic services. It was rebuilding war damaged roads and bridges. It was reviving uh, local governance and markets and schools and everything else. And he, and he shouted in my ear as the helicopter was, was arriving to pick him up, to take him back to Baghdad. He said, General, surely that World War II crowd was the greatest generation. And of course, that was the title of a book he wrote about them, a best-selling book. But he said, surely the soldiers we've seen today are America's new greatest generation. And I think that is very, very true uh, and very accurate and has been borne out again and again and again by those who have served in what is, again, nearly 20 years now of war, noting that, of course, in more recent years, there is a major transition going on and shift, uh, not just for our military, but for the uh, all of the country's foreign policy writ large, uh, which is to add much greater emphasis, the rebalance, if you will, of focus and resources uh, and attention uh, to the Asia-Pacific region, now called the Indo-Pacific region, uh, with the extraordinary rise of China, and also, of course, uh, with the resurgence of Russia as well. So we now are back in an era described as an era of renewed great power rivalries. Well, sir, let's talk a little bit about, um, I want to talk about childhood obesity. You're, you're extraordinarily fit. You always uh, maintained a really, really high standard in, in the military. You were, you were well known for that, in fact, and, and placed great emphasis on physical fitness. Unfortunately, society uh, has, has not been that way. We've seen childhood obesity rates rising since you joined the military in the, in the 1970s. Uh, we now are in a situation where about one in three children is ineligible for military service just due to childhood obesity. Had you noticed this trend uh, during your time in the military service? I did. Uh, and of course, it's a very troubling trend. The truth is, of course, it's not just childhood obesity, it's obesity writ large in the population that is troubling. And it's a feature, of course, not just of the United States, but of most uh, advanced economies around the world. There's something as their prosperity grows and access to uh, foodstuffs and so forth and, and so on that, that end up producing this obesity problem. And of course, jobs that are much less active than those in which generations before used to be engaged in. And so with more sedentary occupations, changes in diet that are made possible because of growing prosperity, uh, the result has been uh, growing obesity. And the same again with, with kids, especially those, uh, sadly, in many of our urban areas where there aren't basketball courts on every driveway or at the end of every street, uh, there aren't big parks available uh, a block or two away and all the rest of that. So uh, this is a has been a growing concern. It has lots of uh, ill effects, not the least of which is that now we see in the age of the coronavirus pandemic uh, that those who are obese and generally, therefore, tend to have other uh, associated uh, health issues like hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, and so forth, uh, sometimes diabetes, uh, end up being much more vulnerable uh, to the virus if they contract it than are those who uh, are uh, healthier than those who are obese. So this is a serious issue. 
uh, in a narrow scope when it comes to recruiting for the military. It significantly limits, as you noted, the eligibility of young men and women to our military, as do some other troubling trends. There are also issues involved, obviously, with um, some behavior, uh, whether it involves drugs or criminal activity or what have you, that have also uh, been of concern. But when you put all that together, the pool of those actually eligible, just eligible to be uh, recruited by our military to meet the standards uh, of our recruiting has been reduced quite considerably. And as you noted, one in whatever the number is, uh, is limited just by obesity. And if you throw in these other factors and then uh, non-high school graduates, uh, you've narrowed that pool of eligible recruits even further. Well, sir, during your time in the military, did you see changes made to help just improve service member fitness and nutrition? And if so, were these changes effective? And and any other changes you might like to see if we were going to make our military service members better? Yeah, sure. Of course, we, you know, this necessitated height and weight standards and and necessitated tape tests. uh, and, And again, uh, body fat content analysis, all of these different uh, issues because of a concern about just the the readiness of the force. Because at the end of the day, the basic measure of readiness is physical readiness. Uh, and if individuals suffer from a variety of health uh, issues, often associated or that go along with being uh, overweight, uh, much less obese, Uh, then, of course, the readiness for various combat missions is reduced. Of course, we, we over time, have dramatically, in in my time in uniform, dramatically reduced activities that used to literally revolve around alcohol. Um, You may recall, again, you are graduated 11 years after I did. Perhaps that had all been uh, reduced by that point in time. But, again, this was a very significant issue in the early post-Vietnam military and, and how everything revolved around the happy hours. And, and, you know, there was quite a bit of peer pressure to participate in this. You were in airborne units, the 82nd Airborne and then Special Ops. And of course, remember the prop blasts were basically uh, a drunk fest. This is not healthy uh, pr- pursuit. And it was in, not only encouraged, it was almost uh, required uh, a variety of other uh, issues that have been dealt with over the years. You know well, of course, the challenges of tobacco use, again, associated with a variety of, of ills that follow from that. Uh, but even that of uh, smokeless tobacco became a very big issue because of the carcinogen. So again, all of these rightly have been uh, issues that we've focused on to try to produce a healthy force. Uh, because that's the that is the foundation, the bedrock of mission readiness. And um, I would have said that even without remembering what the name of uh, your organization is, as was, of course, then beyond that physical fitness. And, you know, you were kind to note that I was enthusiastic about this, perhaps to the point of being viewed by some as a bit of a nut about physical fitness. But, you know, it was not coincidental that the 3rd Battalion 187th Infantry Regiment and the 101st Airborne Division won the cross-country championships every year, the football champion, the softball. I mean, I'm still uh, 
disappointed that we failed to win the chili cook-off one time. We came in second. So we're also a competitive organization, which, by the way, I think is is healthy. I think that it is a realistic recognition that life is a competitive endeavor uh, that should be, again, part and parcel of the culture of any uh, military organization, any organization writ large, noting that you often compete to be the best team player, not just the best individual or best individual unit. And that has carried over uh, over the years. In fact, there was a point during the fight to Baghdad as the commander of the great 101st Airborne Division, where I recognized that the best contribution we could make to the overall fifth core effort in that fight to Baghdad was to support, follow and support the third infantry division because they were perfectly postured, equipped, trained, ready to conduct the thunder runs that ultimately toppled the regime in Baghdad. And so we pushed our Apaches way out in front of them. We one point gave them an entire artillery unit because they needed some more 155 millimeter ammunition. I gave them the third of the 187th Infantry, my old unit, uh, when my uh, fellow division commander, Buff Blunt, asked if we had an infantry unit that could augment their forces. Uh, there's a time when you recognize that, again, it's a time for team play, uh, even as you're trying to compete, uh, again, in a normal situation to be the best, really the, the way to look at it is to be the best that you and your organization can be. Well, sir, you know, as you know, at Mission Readiness, you know, we're very concerned with giving kids what they need, the tools they need to give them the opportunity to serve, whether they turn out to want to or not. So we're, we're concerned with nutritious food. We're concerned with physical literacy and physical education and, and, and opportunities for kids to be healthy. And we think the school setting is, is one of the places where you could do this. Uh, you, you just can't reverse 18 years of bad decisions by kids uh, overnight or even in a six to 12 week basic training session. So given what you've seen and learned from your time in public service and other places, what, what do you think our schools and our communities should be doing to help kids stay, stay healthy and, and, and be fit? Well, there is a component here of actually building a community culture. Uh, one of the great aspects of that little hometown in which I grew up seven miles north of West Point is that we had extraordinary youth sports programs. And we all played them. And it, until a certain level, at least, it was about participation. And there was a time when, you know, everybody did get a trophy just for being there. That shouldn't continue forever, of course. Uh, you shouldn't all get a T-shirt just for showing up. But in the beginning, that certainly is the case. But it's about just building, again, a culture of physical fitness, of physical activity, uh, of team sports, uh, and then also of awareness of nutrition. Uh, and so, again, it's, it's communities, it is schools, it's teachers, it's uh, clergy, it's every, every major leadership entity within a community. And of course, at the end of the day, it's families. It's also role models. And I've been very heartened to see those who have returned to uh, communities from which they, they emerged and where they grew up, where they didn't have these kinds of opportunities. And nonetheless, they still succeeded in whatever it was that they did, uh, learned lessons along the way, and wanted to make sure that, that there are, again, that there is Mike. Um, for whatever community it may be. Because again, we want to be like those we admire 
uh, Mike is that universal term for that. And I think that's an important aspect of this as well. But it does take uh, a village and a community and, and, and all types of organizations, and it takes role models. So those who are, again, in positions uh, where they are teaching, instructing, coaching, guiding, preaching, you name it, whatever it may be, uh, mentoring uh, or parenting, uh, again, all have to be conscious of the encouragement that they provide, the example that they offer, uh, the opportunities they make available, and so forth. And that can be very, very tough in those communities that uh, don't have lots of grass fields and don't have community centers uh, with great facilities and um, may not even have a grocery store in the neighborhood that has fresh produce. So there are various uh, initiatives to try to combat these challenges, uh, but they are difficult. And some of them involve, again, just sort of free market economic forces. Uh, and, and we have to be conscious of that. I think, you know, to be conscious of it as a nation uh, is important as well. And there have been national initiatives at various times. Various occupants of the White House have had vegetable gardens or anti-obesity programs, uh, along with the other programs that different occupants uh, have had uh, against drugs and, and other uh, damaging behavior. We've had a number of podcast guests talk about some of these ideas, some of these innovations and, and ways to use free market and other ways to get fresh and nutritious food. I understand you you work with a company, Aero Farms, that, that has done some innovation in getting fresh and healthy food into communities. Yeah, it's a really exciting company, actually, both because it's exciting technology, it's vertical farming, uh, which has a lot to commend it. Uh, just because it uses very little water, it uses artificial light, it, it, it uh, is a lot of automation, uh, robotics, and so forth. And it can be done uh, in inner-city derelict warehouses. And so this firm goes out and looks for that kind of warehouse uh, in places that ideally uh, have reasonable uh, costs for electricity because that is involved. Uh, and you just stack, if you think of rain gutters, uh, one on top of another, many dozen high um, with little drip uh, that can be infused. Uh, and the seeds are placed on very coarse cloth that is uh, produced from uh, repurposed uh, tread of tires and a variety of other compounds. Uh, and it's quite extraordinary what it does. So you now have fresh greens grown right in an inner city. And of course, it's very easily transported to local grocery stores. And so the initial marketing typically involves those stores within a community where these vertical farm warehouses are located. Uh, they continue to tweak it. As with everything else in the world these days, it's big data and, uh, and AI and machine learning driven increasingly constantly uh, learning and adapting and evolving, but it's really one of the most exciting startups in which I'm invested, uh, and it is beginning to scale very impressively. 
That sounds absolutely cool. My next question, next to last question, is is really I want to take advantage of your leadership. You're 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 a, a known strategic thinker. You you've you've led large organizations, and and obviously in the middle of COVID, there are a lot of people dealing with massive amounts of change with with unexpected conditions. And, and I just would love your thoughts for educators, for parents, for leaders of organizations. What lessons do you take from COVID and, and what would you pass along to them? Well, thanks uh, for mentioning the strategic leadership uh, work, because in fact, during my six years as a non-resident senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center, we built a website on strategic leadership. And it looks at the four tasks of a strategic leader, uh, which I was privileged to execute, say, in the surge in Iraq, the surge in Afghanistan, uh, CIA elsewhere along the way, perhaps when we were doing the counterinsurgency field manual and overhauling all that the Army did to prepare leaders, units, organizations, and equipment for deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan. And the first of these tasks is crucial, and that is to get the big ideas right, to get the right strategy. Then you obviously have to communicate those big ideas throughout the breadth and depth of the organization or entity. You have to then, the third task is oversee the implementation of the big ideas. This is often what we think of as leadership. This is the, again, the example, the energy, the uh, the battle rhythm, how do you spend your time? It's the metrics that you focus on. It's hiring, firing, rewarding, incentivizing, uh, looking at it for yourself, spending time on patrol, seeing it again, and all the rest of that. And then the fourth task, which is often overlooked, is about how to refine the big ideas. You've got to determine that so that you can put those, make those the new big ideas, the refinements, communicate them again, oversee their implementation, and you just do it again and again and again. If you look at the coronavirus, I think the lessons that one would take from this is to keep the big ideas in mind. I think we actually have had the right big ideas. They were published. Uh, the White House published the CDC guidelines. That's one set of big ideas. The National Governors Association had another. Uh, and if you look at states that have rigorously applied those big ideas, uh, ideas such as, while well, you have community transmission, you have to lock down, you particularly take care of the most vulnerable populations, only essential workers are active, uh, you take mitigating measures when you're out, including wear of masks, you have, once you have 14 days of downward trending uh, virus numbers, then you can open up to stage one and you do that very carefully. You still take lots of mitigating measures and, uh, and then you can, after 14 days, go to stage two and so forth. In uh, those uh, locations in the country that have applied the big ideas properly, uh, where their leaders have communicated them effectively, have then overseen the implementation of those very rigorously, uh, and then determine how to refine them. And a refinement, as an example, is uh, unfortunately for all of those who want to be in restaurants indoors or bars indoors have, have found that those are areas that need to be very carefully uh, reopened. If reopened, uh, it, it has to be a later stage with enormous mitigating measures. But again, that relearning and then fed in and you keep 
communicating, overseeing, refining, and doing it again and again and again. So I think that this experience has validated both the intellectual construct for strategic leadership and actually validated it uh, when it comes to this particular situation, uh, which is, of course, so frustrating, so challenging, um, so tragic uh, with the terrible loss of life and indeed the lingering effects for many of those who have contracted and have recovered, but nonetheless have still uh, some lingering elements from having had the virus. Uh, and of course, at the end of the day, it's not going to be resolved until there is a vaccine or a therapeutic treatment or both uh, that are sufficiently widely administered uh, that we can get back about our lives. And I think at the end of the day, the new normal is not going to be the old normal. I think that we will have actually changed many aspects of how we live, how we work, how we play, how we mingle, socialize, uh, and on and on, that there will be for years to come uh, a number of actions that have resulted from this extended experience and noting that it may go on for many months more. Uh, and that the sooner again that we can truly grasp the big ideas and implement those with a degree of rigor uh, that we can return to some degree uh, of normalcy. Again, noting that there are certain elements of that normalcy uh, that will not come back for quite a long time and may, may in some cases never completely come back. No, I think that's true. And just for our listeners, if you'll go to belfercenter.org, B-E-L-F-E-R, center.org, search for David Petraeus or search for strategic leadership, you'll find the uh, that great study that, that he spoke about. Well, sir, our last question, we ask all our guests, what books are you reading right now? What books would you recommend to our listeners? Well, interestingly, I'm rereading Grant's memoirs. Um, and it's an annotated version, annotated by Professor Elizabeth Samet, uh, a West Point professor for over two decades, a very respected English professor, but uh, who has written widely on, uh, on war and those engaged in it, including now many of her former students uh, when they were cadets at West Point uh, and then went out to be members of this new greatest generation uh, that I was describing at the outset of our conversation. But Grant displayed extraordinary strategic leadership qualities. Uh, he was the first general on the Union side to perform strategic leadership properly. Uh, he got the big ideas right. He orchestrated the overall campaign for the first time of all of the, uh, the forces uh, fighting for the Union. Uh, he communicated that very, very clearly. His orders are, are textbook cases of, again, very clear, direct English. Uh, and then he relentlessly oversaw the implementation uh, of those big ideas, uh, sitting in the back pocket of the commander of the main effort, uh, telling him, you know, where to go and just keep at it uh, and not to retreat to Washington uh, after the first battle and so forth. So, and then he did refine these big ideas. But beyond that, um, what was always so important to me about Grant, and it just so happened that I was reading Bruce Catton's Grant Takes Command in the early months of the surge. You know, 
think of the commander of the surge. You're the only four star in Iraq. Um, you have no peers. You, you know, there's no classmates or buddies that you can sort of sit and actually let your guard down. There is a great ambassador was Ryan Crocker an incredible diplomat and we'd commiserate during the day. But again, at night you're there. And so before I'd fall asleep, I'd read a few more pages about how Grant was dealing with these enormous challenges, burdens, pressures, losses, setbacks, mistakes, shortcomings, et cetera, that a commander deals with. And, and again, there's only one commander at the end of the day at that level. And I'm not likening the surge in Iraq certainly to uh, what we experienced during the Civil War, but the experiences are similar. And what he displayed was this incredible, just um, relentless will, determination, fortitude, unbreakable, uh, quiet, by the way, not no chest pounding, didn't even wear the uniform. He wore a private's uniform with the three stars that he was, only he wore at that time. That was the only distinguishing feature that he was again, the, the overall commander. And you think back to these moments where he narrowly avoided a terrible loss at Shiloh, for example, bloody Shiloh, where the Confederate commander surprised him and his most trusted subordinate Sherman, almost drove them back into the Tennessee River, uh, terrible casualties on both sides. And that night, um, he's standing there and Sherman comes out of the dark uh, and says, well, Grant, we had the devil's own day today, didn't we? And Grant takes a stub of a cigar out of his mouth and says, yep, lick him tomorrow, though. And he did. And, and it was that kind of, again, fortitude, uh, that kind of just sheer determination and will that was so inspirational to me at really tough days during the surge. We even used that description a couple of times that on very, very bad days when hundreds of people were killed in suicide bombings in Baghdad markets and, and lick them tomorrow became a bit of a, of a watchword of a rallying cry or something like that. Um, and, that example, again, has always been something very special. Uh, and periodically, I'll go back and revisit that. And that is, in fact, what I've been revisiting lately. And, and I think that others will, would draw inspiration from that as well. Uh, truly exceptional strategic leadership, uh, flawlessly performing each of those four tasks I've laid out uh, in the same way that, that we obviously uh, should be seeking to do in combating the coronavirus pandemic. Well, sir, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to talk to us and share some of your thoughts. Uh, this has been a great conversation, and we thank you on behalf of Mission Readiness. Privilege has been mine, Rich, and thanks uh, again for what you did during your many decades in uniform and what you're now doing with Mission Readiness. What an incredible leader, a profound thinker, just amazing perspective today. So lucky to hear from General David Petraeus. Oh, Ben, I feel like I just got a graduate education in strategic leadership. He is, he is definitely one of the deep thinkers of our time. 
Uh, he's thought deeply about these issues, has obviously has thought deeply about COVID and its effects on our society right now and what we ought to do about it. And it's pretty clear to me he cares a lot about the issues that Mission Readiness is deeply involved with, childhood nutrition, childhood obesity, physical fitness, and all, all of the things that we know are, are just necessary to helping kids lead an active and healthy life and, and be eligible for public service at, uh, if they choose to do so. No, I, I mean, as we heard from General Petraeus today, how we prepare our kids today has a big impact on the military's mission tomorrow and our country's future success. But you know what else struck me, General Gross? is that General Petraeus is taking all this amazing perspective and all the leadership lessons he learned in the military and applying them to his post-service career in the private sector. Um, that initiative he spoke about uh, regarding access to healthy food is just incredible. And think about how his perspective uh, and support is benefiting that incredible initiative. No, absolutely true. And and uh, we're fortunate to have great leaders like General Petraeus who are, are very willing to come on the podcast and, and talk to us and share their ideas. We'd encourage everybody, please subscribe to the podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcast content. And we'll be back next week with another great podcast from the Mission Readiness team.